The following message, entitled Precise and Powerful Promise Keeper, part five of the series Courageous Faith, was given by Joe Ryer on the 16th of August, 2015. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in a series in the book of Joshua. And today we're going to be tackling chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua. So I'm excited about this message. Let's pray and then we'll uh, jump into it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are as revealed in your word. Lord, we pray from these two chapters, these pivotal chapters in redemptive history that they would affect us. They would build our trust and our confidence in you and your power, your faithfulness, and the fact that you keep every one of your promises and you are fully capable to do so. So Lord, we pray for every circumstance and situation represented in this room that you would give us faith and confidence that you are with us and for us if we are believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, I just ask for your help today. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 today. The title of the message is The Precise and Powerful Promise Keeper. The Precise and Powerful Promise Keeper. Before we look at the passage, I want you to think of an event or a moment or multiple events in your lives that you looked forward to. So kind of monumental events. So it might be when you turned 16 years old. As an early teen, I was very excited about my 16th birthday because for some reason in the state of Pennsylvania, they think you're mature enough to drive a car at the age of 16. I remember driving for the first time with no one else in the car thinking, I can't believe they let me do this. But they did. So that was a monumental event that I was looking forward to. For some, it's high school graduation or college graduation. Maybe it's your wedding day. You looked forward to it for a long time, and then that day came. could be having children. could be becoming a grandparent. Maybe for some, it's retirement. But you get the idea. There's, There's something that we're anticipating, and we think a lot about it, and it's generally a positive thing. Well, in today's passage, we're going to look at a monumental event for the Jewish nation. One that they had been looking forward to for centuries. And whenever you get to those milestones, whether it's a 16th birthday or something like we're going to see today, a monumental historic event, it can seem almost surreal when you get to that moment. Like, wow, I am really here. This moment I thought about for a long time is really here. Well, the event that we're going to focus in on today, that chapter 3 and 4 capture, is the event of the Israelites crossing over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Now, we might read that in our Bibles and not get the weight of that, but if you're familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Bible, God promised for centuries that He would bring His people into a Promised Land. And so, if you remember, 40 years before this event, They were freed from slavery in Egypt. And now they're on the brink, the eve, of crossing over into this land. 
If you've been tracking with this series, one of the things that, that Bob pointed out uh, the first, during the first message is that one way to look at the Old Testament stories is through a New Testament lens. And so when we think about the, the Egyptians being rescued from slavery or being brought into the promised land, in the New Testament we see they have spiritual applications. So for example, when you trust in Jesus, you're rescued from your life of slavery. And when you believe in Jesus, we will one day go to the ultimate promised land, which is being with God in heaven. And so these are real historic events, but they also have spiritual meaning through the New Testament lens. The big idea of these two chapters, which describe this event, is this, that God precisely keeps and powerfully fulfills His promises. He precisely keeps it. We're going to see at the end of this section that up to the very day, God precisely kept His promise. And He is the one who alone can fulfill His promise. He's the God of heaven and earth. This is your first Sunday here in our Joshua series. Just a little bit of background. Moses has passed away. And Moses' assistant, Joshua, is being called to lead the people. And Moses was a major player in the history of Israel. The people looked up to him. They didn't always follow, but they looked up to him. And so one of the things in Joshua is the question of, is the God who was faithful to Moses going to be faithful to Joshua? And we're going to see that, indeed, God will be faithful. And in chapter 1, verse 9, God says this to Joshua. Think of Joshua. He has to his big shoes to fulfill. He is stepping into Moses' shoes and he's leading, about to lead God's people across the Jordan River into enemy territory. God says to him, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. One of the things that's clear in the book of Joshua is Joshua took this to heart. He is a man of faith. He's about 80 years old when he is leading God's people into the promised land. And he has a supernatural confidence and faith in God. Now, as we go into chapters 3 and 4, we're not going to read every single verse. And actually, chapters 3 and 4, what they do, what the author does, is he describes the same event from a number of different angles. So those of you who are into film, this is like a director showing you a scene, then a few minutes elapse, and then he's showing you the same scene from a different angle. Now, if you watch movies at my house, I can never seem to follow those kind of movies, but my, my wife always fills me in. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a number of these different scenes, and if you have a, a DVD player at home or Netflix, what we're going to do, I want you to imagine this in movie form, it's up on the screen, and you'll see the little screens below it, and we're going to just jump through different scenes. So this is my remote, scene one. We're going to look at scene one. Once we're done looking, we're going to go to the next scene. We're going to spend different amounts of time at each scene, but it's all with the idea that God's people are about to cross into the promised land, that God indeed has been faithful. So let's check out scene number one. Preparing to cross the Jordan. This is the Jordan River. 
Um, Look in your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. He's ready to go. They set out for Shittim, and they came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the priests, then you should set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, which is about a half a mile. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So if you were Jewish and you were raised on the first five books of the Bible, this was an event and a moment that your parents had talked about, your grandparents have talked about, that you look forward to, and maybe at times doubted, particularly as the first generation who was freed from slavery walked around the wilderness for 40 years. You might have thought, is, is God really going to be faithful? Is He really going to take us into the promised land? Will it really happen? And I love what Joshua says. He says, consecrate yourself. Prepare yourself. Do what you need to do to be ready for the Lord as we cross over. Because tomorrow, the Lord is about to do wonders among us. You hear his faith. He was very confident in the promises of God. And it's the same way. We should be just as confident in God's Word from the first page to the last page. If God says it, He will do it. And this crossing into the Jordan is going to be a visual picture of God's faithfulness. And I love that that He exhorts the people, He tells the people, consecrate yourself. Be prepared for what is about to happen. We're about to go over. Make sure you're ready. Well, the application for us, we're not heading to a physical promised land, but the Bible is very clear that for every human being, man, woman, and child, we will either go to heaven to be with God forever, or we will go to hell because of our sin and be punished by God forever. And the way to be prepared, the most important way to be prepared to go to that inevitable eternity is to trust in Jesus Christ. To trust in His perfection, His perfect life, to trust that He died for your sins, to trust that He rose from the grave. And if you do that, you are His child. But as children, those of us who are parents know this, you can have compliant children, obedient children, or disobedient children. So it's possible to be a believer in Jesus Christ and to be tangled up in all kinds of disobedience. And so... I want us for a moment to just think about the promised land that we're heading to. We're one day going to be in eternity. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be with God forever. And in a sense, our life from this moment 
to that moment, either the moment we die or the moment Jesus returns, is a time to consecrate ourselves, to prepare ourselves. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. He said, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's true of all of us. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, he's writing to Christians, let us cast off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We want to live now in light of that inevitable day. So just a question in this first scene as we're picturing the Israelites consecrating themselves. How are you living as a believer in Jesus? Are you growing in your likeness to Jesus' character and image? Are you different than you were? Are there things that if Jesus showed up in this moment that you would be ashamed of as a believer? If that's you, own up to them and ask forgiveness and ask for power to change and the Lord will help you. So we want to be prepared. This world is not all there is. This is the short part. There is an eternity awaiting every single one of us. And that's what Joshua and the Israelites to, to be prepared for. That let's, let's get ready for what is next. So let's go to scene number two. Get our remote out. Scene number two. Israelites are gathering. And just so you know, they're gathering in large numbers. We're in the hundreds of thousands of people, maybe a million or so people about to cross the river. And what we're going to see in scene two is that God has to go first. He has to go first because it's not just the river that's an issue to take a million or so people through, but it's who's on the other side of the river. There are seven primary enemies that we're going to see in a moment who are trained, powerful kingdoms that God's people are going to have to go up against. And God has a unique way to lead and prepare the Israelites. So scene two, God must go first. Look at verse six. See if this would be your strategy going into enemy territory. And Joshua said to the priests, send the priests first, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of God. 
And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know the living God is among you, and that He will without fail, here's faith again, drive out from you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you. I want you to get the scene. You're Joshua. You have about a million plus people behind you. Not just strong, fit people. You have a variety of ages, a variety of generations. You have babies being carried across this river into enemy territory. And basically what God just told Joshua was, I want you to get the priest, and I want you to carry a wooden box, which is about three feet by two feet in size, and have those guys go stand in the river. That's our plan. We're going to find out in this chapter that there's 40,000 Israelites who are in battle armor ready to fight and God doesn't send them. He sends what's called the Ark of the Covenant. And what might seem like a small little box is actually hugely significant. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with His people. Listen to this quote by a man named Ralph Davis. He said, It... The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 17 times in these two chapters. So chapter 3 and 4, 17 times. Our writer refuses to allow us to lose sight of it. Thus the Ark, the sign of Yahweh's presence among His people, meets us at every turn, reminding us that it is Yahweh, God Himself, who leads His people into Canaan who cuts off the flooding waters, who holds them back, as it were, with His hand. The whole affair is Yahweh's feet. And the Israelites, though active, are still primarily spectators. In other words, God must go first to prepare the way for His people. He has to go first. And we're going to see what happens in a moment when the priests stand in this river. And the effect that has on the people and their faith. God must go first. Just like God rescued the Israelites from slavery 40 years earlier, that was His doing. He's the one who sprung them free. He's the one who's going to give them victory in the promised land. He's also the one for us who must go first. In all that we do, as a church, as individuals, If you're a believer in Jesus, one of the great promises of the Bible, that's even in Joshua, is that He will never leave us or forsake us. He will always be with us. So whatever endeavor we want to do as Christians, we're doing it as a follower of this God who always goes first, who is powerful, who is strong, who is able, who is all-seeing and all-knowing. And when He goes first, no matter what happens, all will be well in the ultimate sense. All will be well. Psalm 23 comes to mind as I think about just the the nearness of God as described in the Bible. There's a reason Psalm 23 is often read at funerals because it's a time in our lives when we need some concrete truth. 
when it feels like, God, you're not there anymore. We need to be reminded he is not only there, but he is fully aware and fully active. Look at Psalm 23 in your Bible. It's right in the middle. So we just think of God's active presence. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. And that Jesus is the good shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for the Israelites, even though we're about to walk into a frightening land with frightening people, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One thing that is really clear in the book of Joshua is Joshua took to heart the command to be strong and courageous. He did not fear evil. He really believed that God was who He says He is. And it's the same for us. Think of whatever circumstance or situation that is on your mind has been hounding you. You go to sleep thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You're thinking about it right now. Boy, doesn't it change to know Jesus is right there with you? He is caring for you. He is leading you. He is watching over you. And you might say, well, I don't feel that. Well, at times, this, this walk of faith really has nothing to do with feeling. Everything to do with believing. Taking God at His Word. And so Joshua, taking God at His Word, overlooks the 40,000 soldiers, sword in hand, and says, you guys stay back right now. I want the priests with the ark to go stand in the water. Which brings us to the next scene. Scene 3. The author is extremely intentional that he wants us to know that crossing the Jordan with an entire nation, is impossible, humanly speaking. He wants us to know that this is an impossible event, like many others in the Old and New Testament, that only God can do. I mean, just think about it practically. Taking a million people anywhere would be challenging. Let alone crossing a river that is just raging, as we're going to see in a moment. I mean, think about those of you who are parents of young children. It was hard enough to get here today with one, two, three, four, five children just from a few miles away. God is leading His people, with Joshua at the point, across this river. Look at verse 12. Now therefore, He's going to give him some more instruction. Take twelve men from the tribe of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. In other words, just like God parted the Red Sea, He said, I'm going to stop the river in one instance. So when the people 
set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Parentheses. This is in your Bible. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. So God tells them what's going to happen. He's going to stop the water. If we're watching this on a movie, this is where if the DVD has a scratch in it and the story ends, we're not happy because the best part is about to happen. But the parentheses, the details in the Bible are so important. It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that that little phrase, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Verse 15. In other words, what is happening there is we are in the rainy season. The Jordan River... It's not a very large river. But during the harvest season, it becomes this torrent, this, this raging river. Um, kids, high school students, how many of you are started school or about to start school in the next few weeks? Just a show of hands. Okay, we're going to go to geography class just for a moment. So this will help if you have any uh, geography lesson on the Jordan Valley, which you probably won't, but in case you do, you'll be well prepared. Because I want you to get what's happening here. This is, a, this is a big deal to take a million people through. The Jordan Valley, um, from top to bottom, so Sea of Galilee at the, the top, Dead Sea at the bottom, it's, it's about uh, 3 to 14 miles in width. So you picture mountains on one side, mountains on the other. The valley can be as skinny as 3 miles, as wide as 14 miles. And the, when, when it floods, the river over its banks during this time it can be as small as 200 yards. It can be as wide as a mile. And one of the challenges with the water wasn't just the water, but it was all the brush and briars and stuff that were happening there. Now, the river itself um, is not super wide. It was probably at its widest part, about 100 feet broad, um, shallowest, 3 feet deep, some, some places 10 to 12 feet. So it's a, a relatively tame river, except... During the harvest. One of the challenges geographically is that the river drops about 40 feet every mile. All that to say, when Joshua tells these guys to carry the Ark of the Covenant and stand on the brink, they're not looking at Yellow Creek. They're not looking at a little stream. They are looking at something that could be about a mile wide, that if you drop your baby, your baby is going for a ride down the river. It's a torrent at this point. And God wants us to know that. He doesn't want us to explain it away. He wants us to know that this was a complete impossibility. And He really wants His people to know that because in a, in a few weeks and months, we're going to see in Joshua, they're going to go up against all kinds of fierce military battles. And they, they need to remember, no, it's God who led you here. It's God who did a miracle to get you here. That same God is going to be with you as you cross over. A man named Dale Davis said, if, if Yahweh, if God can tame a raging river, He can also repel attacking Amorites. If He can tame the river, He can tame the people that they're about to encounter. I mean, think of this in the New Testament. Remember what happened when Jesus was on the sea with his disciples. He's in a boat with his disciples. And listen to what happens. Matthew 
chapter 8, verses 24 through 27. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went, and they woke him up. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This is our Lord doing this. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? It's the same thing. God wanted the Israelites to know, I'm the God over all creation. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I'm all powerful. We trust in Jesus, who is God the Son. And He, when He became flesh, He could talk to the wind and the waves and tell them to stop in an instant. We're followers of Jesus. So we, like Joshua, can be strong and courageous. We have every reason to be strong and courageous. We follow a God who can do the impossible. So just like if God can tame this torrent, He can tame the enemy, the Amorites. Think of your life, your situation. If God can stop the wind and the wave in one word, He can provide enough money for you to pay your bills. He can give you a new job. He can work out the relational difficulty that you're in the midst of. He can help you as you battle sickness and sorrow. Jesus has not changed. God has not changed. And so, though weak in ourselves, we can be strong and courageous because of who we follow, who we trust in. So that was scene three. Scene four. It's actually going to happen. The nation is about to cross. Look at verse 16. The priests did what they said. The Ark of the Covenant's in their hands. Four guys, they're holding it. God's presence is being symbolized. And listen to what happens. Verse 16. The waters coming down from above, from downstream, stood up, rose up in a very far heap at Adam, the city beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel, million plus people, was passing over dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Just like their parents did 40 years earlier through the Red Sea. God wanted the whole nation, to see what He was doing. That He was keeping His Word. And in chapter 4, the last two verses gives the, the theological explanation for what's happening. So flip in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. This, this is the why God did it the way He did it. Chapter 4, verse 23. 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. God wants us to connect the two events, which He dried up for us until we passed over. Here's the reason, verse 24. So that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So what's one of the reasons He did it? So that everyone and all the earth would know. Not just so the Jewish people would know, but so that the Amorites would know. So that all the people and all the earth might know and fear the living God. The nation crossed over. God was faithful. But God knows our human tendency. He knows we are prone to forget. He knows we're prone to forget His faithfulness, His love, His care. He knows we're much more likely to look at our present life circumstances and view Him through those than to remember His acts that He's done for us. That brings brings us to scene 5, which God sets up a way for us to remember, for the Jewish people to remember what God did for the Israelites and what God does for us. So scene number five, remember that God miraculously keeps His promises. God miraculously keeps His promises. I could promise many of you in this room something like, I promise to give you all a million dollars as you leave. I can promise you that. I cannot do that. I have no ability to do that. I can't do it for one of you, let alone all of you. Promise one of you ten dollars, maybe. But I can't do it because I have no power. When God promises, He has the power to back it up. And that, that's the point He wants us to get. Well, He wants them to remember. So look at chapter four, verse one. He's going to set up a way to jog their memory, to remember this event, and for their future generations to remember as well. He said, When all the nations had finished passing over the Jordan, The Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, each tribe, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in a place where you lodge tonight. In other words, from the very river that God just stopped miraculously, twelve men representing each twelve of the twelve tribes, grab a stone, we're going to make a pile of them at a city named Gilgal. So it's going to be a, a memory every time we walk by that pile of stones, we're going to remember what God did. So then, in verse 5, it says, And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark... Oh, let me back up. Verse 4, Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel who he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, these weren't pebbles, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, years later, what do those stones mean to you? Why? Why a big pile of stones? Why 12 stones right on the other side of the Jordan River? 
Why, Mom? Why, Dad? Why, why, why are they there? He said that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The Lord did not want Israel to forget Him. To forget who He is. To forget His power. To forget His love. To forget His care for them. And yet it's a reoccurring theme in the Old Testament that goes something like this. And Israel soon forgot. And there arose a king who did not fear the Lord. And so, he wanted them to remember. And the location was specific. It was Gilgal. It was base camp for their military expeditions they were about to do. It was going to be a place they traveled back and forth many times for many years. And so that they would revisit and remember God's faithfulness. So you can imagine, let's say some years passed, oh, we've got to go yet to another battle. You know, maybe Joshua's back now hurts. Caleb's not as strong as he once was. The swords aren't as sharp as they should be. Oh, we're, we're probably going to lose this one. And then they see the big pile of stones. They remember, no, God's the one who led us here. He's going to be faithful. He's going to keep His promises. Well, for us, the one clear visual reminder that we do regularly as a church is we take communion. Why do we do that? We do that because Jesus instituted it. He said, do it in remembrance of of me. Why do we need reminders of Jesus and what He's done for us? Because we forget. We forget that God really has paid for all our sins. So we wake up and we feel guilty. We feel condemned. We feel unworthy. We feel like we can't pray to God this morning. Communion is a reminder that Jesus paid for all our sins. We're covered and clothed with His righteousness. His blood washes and cleanses us at the deepest level. It's to remember God's love for us. So it's not just a ritual we do. It's to be a clear reminder that no matter what we are facing in life, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, all is well with you in the ultimate sense. God is for you. You are His son. You are His daughter. His Spirit lives inside of you. You are going to be with Him in the ultimate promised land forever. That's what that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice symbolize. It's an incredible reminder. Final scene. Remember that God precisely keeps His promises. He precisely keeps His promises. Why does it matter that God precisely keeps His promises? Because for us, on our end, we can think, God, You're not answering our prayers quick enough. You're not working quick enough in this situation. You're not at, as active as I had hoped You would be. There's one verse at the end of Joshua that is just so striking that shows God has the whole thing under control. There's nothing happening in your life that He's not aware of, that He's not involved with, 
that he's not mindful of? Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. This is where we see his precision to keep his promises. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Now, if you wake up in the morning and this is your verse for the day, if you're like me and you just read, okay, the people came up, tenth day, first month, next verse. Well, why that's a big deal is because if, don't do this now, but if you look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, um, it was on the exact same day, 40 years before, that Israel had begun to prepare for going out of Egypt. The exact same day, 40 years before, God didn't forget about them in the wilderness. God knew exactly what He was doing. God knows all and sees all. And so with exact precision, He patiently waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until that tenth day of the first month. You know, even the, the New Testament believers, they were, they were getting impatient. Jesus, I thought you were coming back already. We're now 2,000 years plus past that. He has not returned. He didn't forget about us. He is patiently, strategically waiting and calling more to come and follow Him. So what's true in the first six books of the Bible that God has and will precisely and pow- powerfully keep and fulfill all His promises. That's true in those first six books. It's true in every one of the books. All 66 that make up the Bible. So when you read the Bible, when you read all the promises in the New Testament, they are true. You can trust them. And so like Joshua, I believe God is calling us to be strong and courageous. Take heart. God knows exactly what is happening in your life in Indiana County, in Pennsylvania, in the United States of America, in every country around the world. He knows about terrorist groups that you and I have never heard of yet. He knows about Muslims who are coming to faith right now. He knows about everything. And He cares about everything. And He's at work so we can trust Him. So let's pray and the band can come up. Lord, we want to be a people that believe You at Your Word. Who are strong and courageous. Who will take risks for You. Who will be bold for You. Holy Spirit, we pray You would fill us with Your Spirit. Lord, increase our faith and our confidence for You. And Lord, as we take risks for You, we pray that we would just watch You move and work through this local church, through this area and region. And Lord, we will give you all the glory and honor and fame. Lord, as we sing this final song, fill us with faith. Help us to recall your faithfulness and your promises. Lord, we love you and we ask all this in your name. Amen.